You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wise, Sherry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, J.T. Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Sanderson, Robin Mom, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Thanks for joining me again for the Author Story Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm super excited to have Allison Brennan back on the show with me. She has an amazing new book. It's called The Sorority Murder, and th- this this book is so uh, – I, I don't even have a word for it, Allison. I, I started reading the arc when I got it and just fell into the book. I, I was – uh, just completely captivated with the story that you had written. And um, I loved it, and I know everyone else is going to, too. Uh, so what a great book to to kick off the new year with. Um, welcome back to the show, Allison. Well, thank you so much. I, I'm so glad you liked it, and thank you for having me here again. I'm I'm thrilled to come back. It's always so easy to chat with you. I could probably go on forever. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, Allison, we chatted uh, around this time last year, it was toward the end of the year, and um, a lot has happened this year. I think we, we all had really high hopes for 2021, and uh, you know, some of those high hopes have, have panned out. Some of them, you know, it feels like we're kind of being dragged behind a truck somewhere. <laughs> uh, it, how, how's the past year been for you? Well, um, relatively normal, actually. Um, so <laughs> I, I will say, because, you know, I already work from home, so I've never had um, an issue from working with home. My sure. kids are back in college full time. They're in class. Um, they don't have to jump through any hoops, which is great. Um, and so they, it, you know, they've had fortunately a very normal year. And so is my high schooler. Um, has been going to school just fine and he's graduating in June. So I'm happy about that, that his last year gets to be very normal. And uh, yeah, so we've been pretty much just going along. My um, oldest daughter, she's probably had the least normal of the year. She's a law enforcement officer. So she's been really, really busy um, because she's in a major city. So but all, all in all, I think we've been we've adjusted very well and we've, you know, we're very lucky. Yeah. I, I spoke with a, uh, a romance author yesterday and um, she was talking about that. Uh, she launched a book right as the pandemic was starting last year and was really concerned about, you know, how that was going to, how it was going to look and, you know, um, how that would be received, you know, launching something in the midst of, you know, all the stuff going on. And she said that she was, um, pleasantly surprised because everyone stuck at home was really looking for uh, an escape and that that book sales uh, and and book love had really um, you know taken a, a drastic uh, turn for the positive over the last year um, have you seen that in in your writing and, and the books that you write and, and I know that you know your your books tend to be a little darker and uh, you know have some more serious subject matter. So how are people responding to the types of stories you tell in this interesting societal place we find ourselves? Well, I, I think 
I sort of fell in the same boat as um, your romance author did, as I had a book that came out in February of 2020. And then um, at the end of March 2020, believe it or not, and uh, I was a mass market in my Lucy Kincaid series. And then I had another book come out in April of this year, um, another hardcover. And I think, I mean, I think my sales have been very consistent. It was a bit of a um, adjustment, especially for my hardcover, because fortunately with those, I can go out to local bookstores and sign because, you know, and meet people. And I kind of miss that, I will say, because I'm a very social person. I like going out and talking to readers and that I miss. Um, But I'm hoping that as the incoming year uh, as it comes in, I know that I'm going to a book signing a friend of mine is having at the Poison Pen in Jan- in January. Um, so ju- actually just next week. And so I think they're just now starting to open. And I think what people want is they, you know, they want to escape, for example, but also they have a little bit more time on their hands. And I think they're re- rediscovering their joy of writing. I remember years and years and years ago when I was on maternity leave, I hadn't been reading at all because I was so busy. And then being on maternity leave, I was stuck at home and rediscovered my joy of reading. Um, and that was 20 years ago because my son's now 20. So <laughs> I, I I don't know. I mean, I think it's uh, obviously everything has pros and cons to whatever happens. And I tend to be an optimist. And so I tend to look on the bright side of everything. So I'm just hoping that the the joy of reading and finding things like, you know, all the different formats, ebook and print and audio can all, you know, people read refine their love of reading and be able to continue that on forever. <laughs> yeah, uh, I found myself um attracted to more um thrillers and uh more dark crime. And and I don't know, there, there's something odd about the way that we process, um, you know, um, trouble around us. And uh, it, it's it's almost like um, facing that, facing horrible things, you know, head on, uh, but from the comfort of my reading chair in, in yeah. my living room, you know, that, that has an odd, uh, it, it does something interesting to our psyche. I don't, I don't know how to explain it. I just... I just know that I've witnessed it. It's 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 kind of, you know, last time we talked, you you talked about your love of Stephen King. Um, and I, I think it was The Stand that you had read twice, yep. um, cover to cover. And oh, there's, yeah. there's just something about stories like that that help us to to confront things that we're scared of or, you know, that trouble us. And and then being able to walk away from it and still be in the comfort of our home. There, there's something interesting that goes on there. You're absolutely right. And I think um, one of the reasons I write and I read crime thrillers um, and I love suspense is because justice will be served in the end. And these are people that come, you know, that they're investigating crimes, whether they're an amateur sleuth, like in the sorority murder with my podcaster, or whether they're an FBI agent, like in my um, Quinn and Costa series, whatever, wherever they're coming from, they're looking to right wrongs. They're looking to find justice to solve a crime and to make sure that the bad guys are punished. And I love that. I've always loved it. I've read mysteries my entire life. And so when you mentioned the stand, I mean, that was such an epic tale of good versus evil. And you had ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances, which 
I also love that trope as well, because um, the average person, you know, what are they going to do when they're faced with something? It's why I love the show, The Walking Dead. You know, you have obviously Rick, who's trained and he's the was the cop. But then you have all these other just normal people all coming together under extraordinary circumstances. And I've always been drawn to those kinds of stories. You um, you you brought up your new book, The Sorority Murder, and um, I I've seen several um, things about the book uh, leading up to the the pre-release. And, um, you know, several things or something I've seen several places is you know, a story ripped from the headlines. And um, that's always fun. And, um, you know, we people ask writers all the time, where do you get your ideas from? And um, and which is kind of a, a trite question because ideas are everywhere. Um, you just need to find a way to, to spin that idea into something compelling. Um, but is, is there a downside to the uh, taking a story that seems to be really hot in our cultural consciousness um and you know not that the sorority murder is uh you know is pointing to anything specifically but is there a danger in in kind of cutting too close to what's going on now or what people are uh, obsessing about i well in some ways yes but at the same time i think that Anything that's popular today is going to become part of our cultural memory. So I, you know, you always, as a crime writer, especially with forensics, and I've now been writing um, for 15 years, published for 15 years. Wow. <laughs> and so I, it, it amazes me sometimes. Um, I remember in some of my earlier books, I didn't have, you know, for example, social media was not quite as big as it is now, or, you know, in 2006, um, the uh, forensic technology has evolved over the last 15 years, uh, cell phone technology, tracking, GPS, all these kinds of things that my characters today take for granted. 15 years ago, it wasn't as, um, as common, but I still think those books resonate because ultimately the story is about people. It's about these characters facing a crime or a situation where they are going to have to call upon all of their skills or all of their um, courage in order to solve. So I try to really, well, I love forensics. I mean, I really do. And I sometimes incorporate a little bit more into my stories than at other times. I really think the core story is about people and people don't change. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember reading um, a John Grisham book from, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. And I forget which book it was, um, but his protagonist was in Italy and um, was was running from something. And, and he went to great lengths to talk about this new cutting edge technology. Um, his protagonist uh, acquired a satellite phone, I think it was, and 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 <laughs> talked about you know some some interesting things that you could do with data and email at the time. And you, I, I thought about that book a, a little while back, and I was like, wow, that is really dated. Um, talking about forensics and the um, uh, the cutting edge technologies that you deal with there, um, how do you present? those things that are cutting edge technologies now and hope that they don't start showing their age in a decade or so. 
Well, it's a, it's kind of a fine line and I try not to obsess over it because I can't worry about where my books are going to be in 10 years. I have to, my goal is to entertain readers when primarily when my book comes out and over, you know, usually books have a shelf life of about, well, a few months, but usually for about a year, like the libraries will be letting them out and the sales will be still be pretty strong. So I want to make sure that people are entertained now. And I don't want to obsess, oh, is this going to stand up for 10 years? Again, so I focus on on the characters and the actual story more than forensics. However, um, I do this and I'm hoping other readers do. I always look at the copyright date of books I buy and I'm thinking, okay, in this date, at this point in time, is this accurate? And I have to make sure that it is. And so I do do a lot of research. And when I incorporate a forensic detail that is important to the story, I'm hoping that I've established my characters as being um, experts in that field so that they can just state something without me having to go into a lot of detail into why something is. So I'll avoid saying things like, oh, yeah, just two months ago, we came up with this new technology or something like that, for example. Um, I remember a book I wrote a long time ago um, had to do with a computer program that really existed at the time. And I want to say this was 2008 or nine. Um, It existed where you can, like a forensic investigator could input data into a computer program and the computer would run the scenario to figure out like bullet trajectory and what might've happened. So I knew it was something that existed, but most law enforcement agencies can't afford programming like that. It's not just programming, but you have to hire a tech to run it. You have to have the training for it. And most law enforcement agencies don't have that kind of money. Now, so I had that in the back of my head. Then I was at the time I my husband was still working for the California State Legislature. There had been a bill that was going through where the legislature was going to allocate money for a very, very specific program um, in law enforcement. It wasn't a computer program, but law enforcement was really angry because it was a one time allocation and they were going to have to then fund it for the rest of their existence. Um, And so they didn't want it. They wanted the money just to go where they could spend it any way they want, not on this very, very specific program. So I know that kind of stuff happens all the time. So I made it where my county uh, board of supervisors actually said, oh, we think this program is really cool and you should have it and gave it to law enforcement. But law enforcement wasn't really happy about that. And I know, I just, with my years working in the government, that government does crap like that all the time and never thinks about what the repercussions of it is going to be down the road and how they're going to be able to use it. So I I did kind of incorporate that and probably made a little commentary about the stupidity of bureaucrats. But (laughs) so every... And to this day, most law enforcement agencies don't have those kinds of high-end forensic things because of money and resources. It's all about time and resources. Well, in the the sorority murder, you use um, uh, something that's extremely popular right now, and that's a true crime podcast. And Lucas Vega is an, an amazing character that you've created, and he's digging into this unsolved case um, but because he's a journalist uh, and not a, uh, a police officer or an investigator or a scientist, um, 
he's not saddled with some of the um, ethical requirements and, and some of the different roadblocks that you might have if your protagonist was a detective. Um, what, walk me through the, the thought process of making this a podcast and, and having your, your main protagonist be someone who's not restrained by all of those things. Um, well, I have always loved true crime. So I have read true crime my entire life, ever since I read In Cold Blood by Truman Capote. I love that book. I read it in eighth grade, and I've been addicted to true crime ever since. Now, podcasts are really popular. I was talking, I was, so my um, fourth child played softball, and there was a mom on her softball team, and she and I were talking about true crime. And I had never realized, this was probably about three years ago, I never realized how big podcasts had become because it wasn't something I really listened to. I was primarily a reader. Um, you know, I like to read my books and be able to savor them and put them down and not have somebody talk to me. Um, and she was addicted to this podcast. And for the life of me, I cannot remember what the name was, but it was all based on cold cases. And I thought that was fascinating. So I started listening to just random podcasts when I had the time and would download them like if I was traveling. And I thought, oh, that's kind of interesting. So that was kind of in the back of my mind. Then when I came up with this specific story, um, my daughter, the same daughter who played softball, was looking at colleges. And she was looking at NAU, which is where this book is set, and University of Arizona. Um, and Grand Canyon University. And so we were looking at all the colleges and all her opportunities. And I kind of fell in love with NAU just because it's in Flagstaff and it was beautiful. And I kind of wanted to set a book there. And then I started thinking, oh, wait a minute. What if, <laughs> and this is how all books start. What if there was a murder here? Because, you know, as I was walking around campus, I was kind of thinking, well, this would be a good place to hide a body or you know what? There's no security here. and I don't see any cameras. Um, I, I have these things all running through my head. And of course, my daughter like thinks I'm crazy. Um, and so I kind of came up with this idea of what if there was a murder on campus and how would it be solved? So I started doing a little investigation, what law enforcement agency would be responsible. And then I said, what if it was a cold case? And then it just kind of all clicked. Well, podcasts because these are young people they're more into podcasts my kids listen to them far more than I do um and my kids are all between the ages of 17 and 27 and I think oh well a young person would be far more apt to do rather than say a reporter like who's going to write in a print paper you know because I don't even know if they have them on campus anymore they would have a podcast so then I kind of put it all together that way it was like all these different things that kind of came together and i know that probably doesn't make a lot of sense to a lot of people but that's kind of how i get all my ideas so uh, what did the um the narrative style of incorporating the podcast into the book what did that afford you uh, as, as a writer the, this new tool that you get to to uh, give information to the reader it was actually very difficult at first, because I don't want to just talk to the reader. And a podcast is obviously very verbal. Yeah. And, you know, it's basically dialogue. So I had to kind of figure out how am I going to incorporate it into the story without just, you know, having chapters that were just a podcast transcript. So I, that's when I wanted to have a story about a U.S. Marshal. 
And then my editor and I were talking about it and we decided, well, because I already have my Quinn and Costa series, which is our FBI agents, that we wanted to have a series that had no law enforcement primary characters. So I made her a former U.S. Marshal. And I, and also she was a very interesting character to me. So I thought, oh, well, what if she just kind of comes in into the middle of this and then I can quickly catch up readers because she becomes invested into the podcast. And she is asked by her former um, criminal justice professor to help Lucas with the podcast because she has experience and Lucas has information and putting them together would help um, make the podcast more successful. Do you, um, is, is this book a standalone? I think it could be read as a standalone. I'm actually writing a second book with Regan Merritt. Um, I designed it so that it, the story itself would stand by itself, but Regan as a character can continue. Gotcha. I, I ask because I know that your Lucy Kincaid series is wildly popular um, or has been. And uh, what, what does, um, when when you write a character in a series for as long as you have with Lucy, um, does, does that afford you anything um, that writing standalones don't? Uh, I, I've talked to other authors who said, you know, writing a standalone, uh, you don't have any of the world building that, that you have in your series to kind of tie you down. You can do anything. Uh, but the benefit of writing a series is you do have all that world building. You've got um, characters with relationships and relationships with readers and, you know, all of this that's kind of built in and really takes a lot of the um, the pressure off. Um, you can just kind of get right to the story. Um, I, could you talk a little bit about writing standalones versus writing in a series and what each of those afford to you as an author? Well, I I enjoy both. The first book of any series is really written as a standalone. I sure. mean, because you want every book to be able to be satisfying to the reader so that when they close it, they have a complete story. So um, the Sorority Murder and then the Third to Die, which was the first in the Quinn and Costa series and the first Lucy Kincaid could all be read by themselves. Then as characters become, you know, not necessarily popular, but people become invested in them, the series can become I won't say they're easier to write. The characters are easier because you already know them. You know how they're going to react in any situation. I know this sounds really weird to people, but you know the characters are unique human beings, and they do things that I don't always expect them to do, but it fits their character. So as you're writing a story, like Lucy has 17 books and six novellas, something like that already, um, I kind of know how she's going to react. I know how her husband's going to react. And that is really great because I don't have to worry about that, trying to figure them out as human beings. But at the same time, you want to make the story exciting and you don't want the readers to be bored. So you tend to have um, more complex plots so that you can give them more challenges so that they're faced with situations they've never been faced with before. Um, so with the sorority murder, you know, I started set it up so that, you know, everybody walks in, they're all new and fresh. But I also want to say, okay, if I continue with Regan Merritt, and I know I had to have another book with her, 
How is she going to grow over the course of the series? What is she going to think? How is she going to react? Um, how do I want her to be? And she did, wasn't exactly how I expected her. She's very, very logical. She's very calm. She doesn't overreact to anything, um, which is different from a lot of my other characters who tend to be very passionate. Uh, Regan is very methodical and she was very different character than I think I've ever written before. She's very unique to me. So I really want to explore her a little bit more. I don't know if that helps with the questions because I, I haven't written a true standalone as a standalone where, you know, I knew I wasn't going to be writing another book. Uh, I think readers like series because they like returning to a familiar place and a familiar person. Yeah. In, in writing the sorority murder, um, because, uh, you know, we're talking about a, a crime that that happens uh, on a college campus and we're, we're dealing with university aged people and, and a lot of the situations here. Are, are there anything that you do as a writer to connect with that um, that part of the population, younger people to to get? Um, so that you can portray them uh, in a uh, in a meaningful, um, you know, true to life way, a, as opposed to, you know, dealing with more uh, adult uh, characters, uh, for lack of a better term. And you know, how how do you kind of get in the mindset of of writing uh, different characters that are at different stages of life? Um, it helps that I have five five kids. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, I, I know exactly um, what you mean. And I think, you know, I watch what my kids watch. I know the video games my sons play. I know um, friends. My kids have all been involved with sports. So I've met, a, or one daughter was involved with theater. I've met a wide variety of young people. And I think that um, because of that, I can kind of absorb just just by observation, I do have two college kids right now. So that was a little bit, I had that experience with the college community and that age group. So I tried to make sure that they were as authentic as possible. Um, you know, you never want to make characters stereotypical. There are a few things about college kids that I think are pretty um, standard you know, that, that you can kind of tap into just in terms of how they view the world and how they, um, you know, how they speak, how they communicate, what they're interested in, but they're still all unique human beings. Yeah. Do, do I see that you have a new Lucy book coming out in, in a few weeks? Is that the book you were alluding to? Uh, no, actually that is a reissue. Oh, okay. Um, it's a three novellas that had been previously published in digital format that is being just pub just published in print so that readers that don't have e-readers and want a print version now have all those novellas in a print version. Nice. Nice. Um, I know that you typically put out more than one release a year. Um, do, uh, how do you manage uh, a busy writing life like you have? Writing is my job. Um, I love it, but just because I love it doesn't mean that it's not a job. So I put in the time every day. Um, I write 
maybe not seven days a week, but definitely six days a week, primarily in the mornings and early afternoons. And that's mostly because when my kids were still at home, I have one at home, but when my kids were still at home, I always had things to do after school. We had sporting practices, games, theater, whatever it happened to be. You know, there's a lot of stuff to do after three o'clock. So I got into the habit of writing basically from eight to three every day. And I think just keeping that um, commitment, I'm a huge procrastinator. So sometimes I'll be fooling around on my computer until like 10 or 11. But I, I do put in the time and I make sure that I get, you know, it. Basically, I don't hold myself to a word count because some days are very productive and I might write 5,000 words and other days it's like pulling teeth to get a scene done and I may not even get 500 words on the page. So I put in the time and the book ends up being done by deadline. I don't know how that happens sometimes, but it does. (laughs) Well, I love it. Um, The new book is available everywhere today. Uh, When you're hearing this, the sorority murder uh, we're going to have links to it in the show notes of this episode where you can grab it in Kindle edition or hold the paper in your hand or um, audiobook. Um, have you listened to the audiobook yet, Allison? That's amazing. No, I haven't received this one yet. I've listened to some of my other audiobooks, which is really weird for me, but I, <laughs> you know, because I can hear the book in my head because I, I wrote it. So hearing somebody else read the book was weird, but I've learned. Um, I've had some great audiobook readers, and I'm sure the new one for this series is going to be just as good. I've been very pleased with the production level uh, from Mira on the Quinn and Costa series, so I'm sure this one is going to be just as good. Yeah, I can't wait for it to release and and, and pick it up as well. Uh, but we're going to have links where you can get it in all those formats in the show notes, or go visit your local bookstore and uh, you know, support local bookstores for sure. Uh, Allison, if people are just discovering you and want to dig into all the great stuff that you do, where can they find you online? My website has all my books um, by series in order, and that's allisonbrennan.com, just my name.com. And then I have an active Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash Allison Brennan. Um, I'm not very active on Twitter, but I have a Twitter handle too, which is Allison underscore Brennan. And then Instagram, where I mostly post about my animals and my daily walks, uh, is AB Rights. So Instagram at AB Rights. Excellent. We'll link up all those places as well to make it easy for folks to find you. Allison, this has been so much fun uh, catching up. Love the new book. We're going to send everyone to pick up a copy. Thank you so much for taking time to come back on the show. Thank you for having me. You have an amazing story idea. You execute the writing and editing flawlessly, and now the only thing missing are readers. We can help you go from author to author superhero with Story Origin. Story Origin is a one-stop shop for marketing tools with a community of amazing authors working together to find reviewers, build mailing lists, increase sales, and collect feedback from beta readers. Everything an author needs all in one place from providing review copies or beta copies, reader magnets to ensure you stay connected with readers, easily distribute audio promo codes, universal retail links to send readers directly to the proper point of purchase, or provide direct download links for members of your mailing list. 
Story Origin has all the tools you need in one easy-to-use site. Use the promo code ASP21 at checkout when subscribing to the yearly plan and you will get 10% off your first year. This code will expire December 31st, so hurry over and subscribe now. StoryOriginApp.com Dabble is a proud sponsor of Author Stories. Dabble is an easy-to-use cloud-based writing tool that gives writers a way to organize, plot, and create amazing stories wherever they are. Write in our desktop app, on your Mac or Windows computer, tablet, or mobile device. Dabble syncs your latest version with the cloud on all your devices. Write anywhere and anytime inspiration strikes. We got you. Dabble is my preferred writing tool, and I think it will be yours as well. Visit DabbleWriter.com for your free trial. Now stay tuned for an audiobook excerpt from Richard Glebe's The Jason Crane Series. How do we know when we are watched? Do the eyes of a predator reflect moonlight, focusing it on our skin? Do we feel two little spots of white on our neck and bristle with fear? I knew I was watched, and I could feel its quality. A man's gaze, like yearning eyes in a smoky tavern. I felt drawn to it. I skirted the pond, and beneath a vine-choked bower, I found the horseman's severed head. The braid at the back had snagged on some twig, turning the dead eyes upward. A dragonfly rode his cheek. It fled as I reached for him. I took hold of his braid, like the vine of a pumpkin, and drew him from the water. We sat together on a mossy log, he and I. Oh, I felt such joy to look upon his face again. I wiped the mud from his lips and nostrils, preparing him to be buried. The Domine could not watch the graveyard always, I decided. I would wait for night to fall, steal a shovel, and do the work myself. A trio of colonial soldiers were raising a redoubt nearby. Thomas the gravedigger brought them his own long-handled shovels. He stood and watched the soldiers work with professional interest, as dirt was his trade. Autumn leaves snagged in his hair, but he was too busy tale-telling to notice. The morning's dark business had quite bewitched his imagination. But the big one was a Hessian. One of them horsemen, head lopped off by a cannonball. He'll be a-haunting this place now, he will, with a hip-hip and a clippity-clop. I'll be seeing headless spooks in my burying ground. Just you wait. And if he can't find his own head, he'll be wanting one of ours. Lord love us. He shivered, hands in pockets. The soldiers laughed at him, but the boy was serious. Our legend had begun to spin itself already from the lips of our tow-headed gravedigger. Fact and fiction going their separate ways, severed as they often are. I listened with fascination. I had always loved a ghost story, and I'd never witnessed the birth of one before. Ghost stories are a form of history. If we say, three men died building that church and they forever haunt it, we keep those souls alive in death. Ghost stories are the past bleeding into the present, demanding acknowledgement of those unseen presences all around us, in our street names and genealogies and on our crumbling headstones. The tragedy of Old Willow, the fall of the horseman, the fate of you or I, 
These tales are forgotten by academic historians, who chronicle only great men. But our small lives are remembered, so long as our ghost stories are told. That is why we must tell them and retell them, and keep them kindled in the hearts of our children.